As we return to John chapter 8, I want to very quickly, in case you haven't been with us the last few weeks, I want to set the stage for what's happening. The day following a seven-day celebration known as the Feast of Tabernacles, John chapter 8 verse 2 tells us that early in the morning, the next morning, after spending the night at the Mount of Olives, Jesus came again into the temple All the people, were told, came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. The scene's quite majestic. It's early, a chill in the air, a crisp breeze. It's October. Jesus is here in the temple. We'll later come to learn that he's in an area close to the treasury. And he's teaching the multitudes. I would have loved to have been there, right? To hear Jesus communicate God's word. And yet the tranquility of that moment is abruptly interrupted by a group of what we're told scribes and Pharisees who bring to Jesus a woman, not just any woman, but a woman who just minutes before had been caught in the act of adultery. And we noted two Sundays ago that it was very clear, especially just even from the reading of the text, that these religious men, these scribes and Pharisees, they had little to no compassion for this particular woman. Instead, it was evident that they were just using her in an attempt to catch Jesus in some type of legal conundrum. Not only does Jesus masterfully sidestep any controversy, not only does Jesus diffuse the situation, these men end up dropping the stones and and leaving, but Jesus most graciously refuses to condemn her exhorting that she go and sin no more. And it's at this point, the scribes and the Pharisees have left, at least that contingent of men. I imagine that the woman stayed right where she was. But Jesus turns his attention back to the crowd of onlookers. He had just been teaching. Before the interruption, he now gets back to his sermon. And it appears that the topic at hand, just from the context, was Jesus being the light of the world. Aside from this, on multiple occasions in the exchange that follows with the religious skeptics, Jesus will go so far as to apply to himself the sacred name of Jehovah God, the very name that God gave to Moses way back even before the Exodus at the burning bush when Moses says, who do I say that you are? And God declared, I am that I am. On numerous occasions in this exchange, Jesus has not just dropped the I am, but he's attributed it to himself. This conversation is both heated and contentious. In verse 28, things reach a bit of a climax. When Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, which we know in hindsight, he was speaking of his crucifixion, then Jesus says, you will know that I am. That word he, you'll note, is in italics, meaning it's not in the original text. Jesus adds, I do nothing of myself, but as the Father taught me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. And then John, as he, as he, as he does, gives us a little bit of commentary. He adds that as Jesus was speaking these words, the I am, the light of the world, that many people who were there believed in him. Well, much of Jesus' discussion has been focused on the back and forth with the religious leaders. 
John wants us to know that the larger crowd believed in Jesus based upon what Jesus was saying of himself. As they're listening to Jesus declare these wonderful truths, faith began to stir. You know, as we're told in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, that that's how it happens, right? That faith in God comes where? Faith comes by hearing, not just any hearing, but hearing the word of God. Well, verse 31 of John 8, then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. When Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples, he's explaining here to a group of people, John has told us, have already believed in Jesus. He's now explaining the mechanism by which this infantile belief would grow. Again, we noted two Sundays ago that faith in Jesus is initiated by the hearing of God's word and believing, but then it expands through, as Jesus says, an abiding in his word. What initiates spiritual life expands spiritual life. This word abide in the Greek, it's an action verb. It literally describes the continuance in something. Please know that this word speaks to more than just reading your Bible. It's a good first step. But abiding, it describes someone that's immersing themselves in the pages of God's word. While God's word is essential for spiritual life to begin, God's word, friend, according to Jesus, remains the essential element for spiritual life, your spiritual life, to develop. As Jesus continues his thought, don't miss what he says results in a person's life when they make a decision, when they choose to abide in his word. What does Jesus say? He adds, if you do this, you shall know the truth. This word know, it can be translated as come to know. The development of knowledge. It's a continual process of gaining understanding. You shall know the truth, come to know, continue to know, expand your knowledge of, and that truth that you're engaging with and experiencing as you're abiding in God's word, that truth does something. Jesus says, the truth shall make you free. The truth makes you into something. Literally, Jesus is saying, the truth will set you at liberty. The result of abiding in God's word is a greater understanding of the truth, which with time yields greater and greater and greater freedom. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, before we just move on from that thought, I do want to take a few minutes and explain what Jesus meant when he spoke of freedom, what the Bible means when it speaks of liberty. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, it's a famous passage, but the Apostle Paul kind of expounds on this idea. Exhorting believers to, quote, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. This definite article, the liberty, it, it, it doesn't just describe any liberty. The liberty. It's something distinct. It's a particular liberty. So, what liberty is Paul referencing? 
there are three clues in this verse that, that kind of bring our attention to it. First, Paul is referring to a liberty that does not originate in country. It's not afforded to you by constitution, or for that matter, an individual. But rather, Paul is talking about a freedom, a liberty, provided specifically by Jesus. He writes, the liberty by which Christ has made. Keep in mind, the freedom that Paul is referencing is something that resides in Jesus and the particular work that he initiated and accomplished on the cross that provides a freedom. Secondly, the second clue is that Paul is referring to a liberty that exists regardless of your perspective. Again, Paul writes, Christ has made us free. You see, Paul describes this freedom as being sure, solid, regardless of one's perspective. It's a freedom not up for debate. Every Christian, whether you realize it or not, has been set free through a work of Jesus on Calvary. Thirdly, by the very implication of Paul's exhortation to stand fast in this liberty, it seems that while this freedom exists for every believer, there are forces at work trying to snatch that liberty and freedom away. It's why Paul then continues by saying, do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. The implications of this verse imply that it's entirely possible for a person freed by grace to revert again to bondage. Which is why Paul invokes this really powerful image through his exhortation that we make a decision to stand firm. In the Greek, the original language, this word, one word, stand fast, it means to keep one standing. We stand firm by firmly standing on an idea that Christ has made us free. And then if you couple Paul's exhortation with the things being articulated by Jesus here in John 8, we can surmise, how do we stand firm in the liberty? How do we stand firm in this freedom? We stand firm by abiding in God's word. The truth shall make you free. Thus the truth shall keep you free. With these clues in mind from Galatians 5, these clues that Paul is describing a liberty provided by Jesus, one that exists regardless of perspective, and one in which there are forces at work trying to snatch that freedom away from you. We come to see from a much larger standpoint that there are two things the truth sets us free from. Two things Jesus liberates us from. First, Jesus has freed you, and please know this, Jesus, the work he did on the cross, a work you couldn't do on your behalf, he did for you. Jesus has freed you from the resulting bondage of moral expectations. Where is the law, and we can just say all religious systems, the law, where is the law binds us to a merit-based process that demands we earn, we work, and then we earn to work and maintain God's favor, the gospel says that it's grace alone, provided through Jesus alone, that frees us from that expectation. You see, what Jesus does on the cross permanently changes who we are. We go from a sinner, someone lost and wicked, to being made righteous before God. Permanent righteousness results. 
While the law enslaves you to the pursuit of trying to measure up to a standard, it is grace that removes those shackles, allowing you the opportunity to simply enjoy a relationship with God. I love and serve and live to please Jesus. Why? The fact is, is I do these things not because I have to. I do them because I've been freed from that expectation and I want to. It's, grace changes our motivations. It doesn't necessarily change the result. It just changes the path in which we get there. Obligation or freedom. This idea... No, undoubtedly sets the stage for the conversation Jesus is about to have. But, there, but there's a second thing that we're freed from. Jesus frees you from the resulting bondage, not just of moral expectations, but of self-rule. This idea as Americans is hard for us to grasp. Like it's so easy for our political context and traditional understandings of freedom to warp our understanding or comprehension of what Paul actually means when he uses the word liberty, or more specifically, what Jesus is implying when he declares the truth shall make you free. What is freedom? What is liberty? Americans, we don't really understand this biblical idea because of, well, America. As a matter of fact, it's this fundamental misunderstanding of what freedom and liberty are that ends up fostering or creating a void where there's so much legalism that develops within a church. For many, liberty is defined as the freedom to do what I want as long as it doesn't harm someone else. As deist Thomas Jefferson famously wrote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and what? The pursuit of happiness. Now consider for a moment the fundamental flaw in that thesis. Does the liberty to live your life however you want in the pursuit of happiness actually make you free? Is that what results? You know, the truth is it doesn't result in freedom. Like, you might be able to choose your vice. But once that vice has been chosen, it tends to possess all the authority. Like, understand, no one reading Paul's letter to the Galatians in the first century Roman culture, or those listening to Jesus there on the temple after the Feast of Tabernacles, would have processed the idea of freedom or liberty as life void of authority. Like there was no such thing. You see, they understood what we have forgotten. Everyone has a master. In America, you might be free to pursue whatever makes you happy. But that in and of itself is not liberty or freedom afforded by truth. The fact is, our founding fathers specifically sought limited government, not with the aim of no government, but in the pursuit of self-governance. Instead of a king ruling over every man, the American founders wanted a system whereby every man could be the master of his own destiny. Every man could rule himself. At least that was the theory. You know, Jefferson, he should have written this. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that 
They are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, the freedom to govern oneself, and pursue what makes him happy. That's actually what he meant. Sure, while living in America with a constitution and a bill of rights does afford us freedom from a tyrannical government that does seek at some points to impose its will on our lives, in the end, though, freedom to do whatever you want and the pursuit of whatever you think will make you happy does not yield liberty. Instead, if you're honest, all it yields is a servitude to that pursuit. Here's why this is the case from a biblical perspective. Man was never conditioned, wasn't created to rule himself, but to be ruled. Fundamentally, in Genesis, Adam, this is before sin. While Adam was given dominion over all of creation, he was not given dominion over himself. God was over man, and man was over everything else. And yet, while Satan's original lie in the garden was that man could be his own God, do you remember what actually happened when Adam and Eve ate the fruit? Did they become their own God? No, not at all. According to Romans 1 verse 25, Paul says that in that singular moment, man exchanged the truth of God for the lie. And then he worshipped and served the creation rather than the creator. While true that you have complete control over who or what sits on the throne in your life, there is one thing evident, and please don't miss this. You do have a say on who sits on the throne of your life, but there's one thing you can't escape, and that is the fact that you can't sit there. You weren't created that way. This is what makes liberty, in our American context, misleading. Though you've been given the freedom to self-govern, the irony is that you will always advocate the throne to someone or something else other than yourself. It's why the ideal of America liberty is simply a mirage. Though we are free to generally do what we want, would you say, honestly, that the majority of Americans, the people you know, would you describe them as being free or mired in some type of bondage? Like, honestly, the majority of people living the American dream of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are not free at all, nor are they happy. In actuality, you look around at our culture, and there's a lot of emptiness and misery. <laughs> look no further than credit card debt. Are you really free? No, Capital One is ruling over you. And they're demanding a cut every month. Keep in mind, the liberty described in Scripture and what Jesus is discussing here in John 8 isn't freedom from governance, nor is it freedom from servitude, authority. God made you and he made me. He made humanity to be ruled. Instead, when the Bible describes Liberty, the liberty that grace and truth affords, it's instead describing life under the enthronement of a worthy king. You serve, you choose who you serve. You see, liberty, the liberty 
that you've been given by Jesus through his grace is not the freedom to do whatever you want, which ironically leads you back to the bondage of self-rule and therefore the servitude of, of others in these pursuits. Liberty is instead the opportunity to finally live according to the way that you were created. It's to return to the, the original order, the design. Man back under the rule of whom? Of his creator. Like, what this means is that real liberty, lasting freedom, can only be discovered in an absolute surrender to Jesus. If you want to really be free, reject the world, it's a terrible taskmaster, and follow Jesus. To this point, Paul writes more extensively in Romans 6. Let me read you a section of scripture with all these things in mind. Paul says this, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, Yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having now been set free from sin, you became what? Slaves of righteousness. You're going to serve something. Paul says, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness, of holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness What fruit did you have then and the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit of holiness and the end, everlasting life. Jesus, when he talks about freedom, he isn't offering you a freedom from servitude, but the opportunity to ultimately serve a worthy and much greater master. Well, verse 33, and I promise we're going to get through the whole chapter. Well, they said to Jesus, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? To begin with, there is a measure of irony in that statement, right? The Jewish people had been in bondage to a lot of people. They had been in bondage to the Egyptians, numerous nations during the period of the judges, not to mention the Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks. Currently, they were in bondage to Rome. The fact is the Hebrew people had experienced more bondage than freedom. You see, the reality is that these religious leaders rightly understood that Jesus was speaking spiritually, which is why they begin their retort here by saying, we're Abraham's descendants, man. Because of their unique heritage and subsequent dedication and obedience to the law of God, they're making the argument here that their hearts, yeah, they might have been conquered, but their hearts had never been conquered by anyone. The argument here, their response centers upon an allegiance to God, regardless of national circumstance. Well, Jesus answers verse 34, most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, 
you shall be free indeed. Since these men are basing their challenge on their religious allegiance to God, their family heritage, all the while failing to fully understand what Jesus is speaking of, the, the freedom he's speaking of, what does Jesus do? He turns the topic, since they already knew he's talking in the spiritual realm, he turns it to something specific. He turns it to the topic of sin. He says, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. You think you're free, but you're really not. If their obedience to the law, which demonstrated their allegiance to God, had yielded such freedom, Jesus here is pointing out a counterproof. The existence of their sin was an unavoidable evidence of a greater bondage they were all subjected to. It's it's like Jesus is saying, you claim to be free? Really? Look at your life. Look at the sin. Look at the bondage. You're not free at all. Now, building off this idea, Jesus then establishes a contrast. A contrast between the authority granted to a son and the authority granted to a slave in the house. You see, the only one in a home that possessed the power to liberate a slave, to set a slave free in a practical sense, was either the master of the home or his legal heir, the son. In a sense, Jesus, on one end, he's calling these religious men slaves, But at the same time, he's highlighting their inability to free themselves. You're slaves to sin. And a slave can't free itself or another slave. You need a son. The point is that sinners can't free other sinners any more than a slave can free a slave. And additionally, a slave can't free himself without the intervention of either the master or the master's son. With this in mind, that Jesus is, is no doubt making it clear that his position as the Son of the Father grants him this unique authority. Think about it this way salvation from sin requires two fundamentals. Think about it. It's not rocket science, it's pretty simple, actually. Two fundamentals for salvation. One, the need to be saved. And two, the inability to save yourself. Like those are kind of the fundamentals for salvation. Like by definition, if you could do something to remedy your sin situation, you wouldn't need a savior. That makes sense? If you could save yourself, you don't need a savior, nor do you actually need saving. You have total control over the situation. That said, if there's nothing you can do because you're enslaved, your only hope is what? the intervention of a liberator. This is why, in the context of the topic of the bondage of sin, Jesus immediately pivots to, I think, one of the most highlightable verses in all of the Bible. This statement, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Again, this word makes Son makes you free. It implies an act done on one's behalf. An, an action intrinsically independent of one's personal involvement or merit. As the Son, Jesus came to do something that fundamentally makes you free 
that fundamentally was something you couldn't do because you were a slave. Jesus came to liberate. Before we continue, I I hope you understand whatever you're dealing with this morning, there is no bondage of sin that Jesus cannot set you free from. It's a promise, which is why it's such a highlightable verse. Again, to this point, Paul writes in Romans 8 too, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Practically, never forget what Jesus says is the key to this liberty. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Verse 37, Jesus continues, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. Well, They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. While these men took pride in their Abrahamic heritage as being the evidence of God's favor, they were descendants from Abraham. Jesus is clear they weren't children of Abraham. Makes this distinction. The fact is, is they were really self-deceived. In a way, Jesus is saying, I know you descend from Abraham, but who cares? Look at your actions. And what were their actions at that time? They were wanting to kill him. Last Sunday, we kind of expounded upon this this idea, the difference between a descendant and a child, by looking at Abraham's initial calling while he was in Ur of the Chaldeans. But just to reiterate, the core difference between being a descendant of Abraham and being a child centered on a correct understanding of what Jesus meant when he said, the works of Abraham. The scriptures in their totality are clear. The only work that made Abraham righteous before God, and by default, you and I, a child, was a belief, it was faith, in God's promise of a Savior. Verse 40, but now, you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. That, just on a side, that's kind of a fascinating statement. Like Jesus is literally saying, if you wanted to translate it a different way, he's saying, you seek to kill me, a man who told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham never treated me this way. (laughs) Then he says, you do the deeds of your father. Again, he's coming back to the idea of a father. Then they said to him, we are not born of fornication. We have one father, God, no doubt. This reference to being born of fornication was meant to be a dig towards Jesus' controversial parentage. But he said to them, verse 42, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceed forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but, but he sent me. Like, what an amazing statement, right? A true love of the father will always result in a love for the son. Jesus continues, why do you not understand my speech? Now, that's a rhetorical question because Jesus immediately answers it. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? Well, because you are not able to listen to my word. In the original language here, this word able, it means power. 
It spoke of one's capability. Jesus is saying that they were incapable of listening. And then he adds why they were incapable of listening. He says, you are of your father. Now he's going to give the identity of their father. The devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. Now, don't miss the context. We're in the temple outside the treasury. He's talking to the most religious people in that day, and he's just dropped a hammer, dropped a bomb, lit it, explosive, and he's standing there. Your father is the devil. He's publicly calling the most religious people in society children of Satan. And again, he's speaking here of the motivation, the inner motivation of why they're rejecting him. It's the desires of your father the devil. He adds, the devil was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? I think there was a pause there. Okay, we've got issues, that's fine. Who's going to convict me of doing something wrong? You want to kill me? Who's going to convict me of sin? And, and I think he, he's like, name a sin. Here's the public forum. Go for it. And it's crickets. How long did he wait? Look around. Sundial watch. At what point? And then he just picks up his idea, right? He says, I tell you the truth. Why you do not believe me? He who is of God hears God's word. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. Again, I need to point out, he's speaking to the most religious men of the day. He's saying, he's rebuking them that you are not of God. It was an assault against their piety. Well, verse 48, the Jews answered and said to him, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan? So now they're dropping racist slurs and have a demon. And you can always tell when someone is Rapidly losing an argument because they resort to name-calling, which is what they're doing. But Jesus answered, he says, I, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father. You dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Now, this is a reference to the earlier exchange where he told them that they were going to die in their sins. Now he's referring to how you don't die in your sins. You hear his word, you believe it, and there's life. Verse 52, but the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead. And the prophets. Now, technically that's not true, right? Abraham, they weren't dead. Death is not the end of anyone. So, so there's a, a theological misunderstanding here right from the beginning. They continue, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. They don't understand what Jesus is talking about in this grand picture of death, the afterlife, resurrection. They say, are you greater than our father Abraham? The answer was yes. Who was dead? He was not. The prophets are dead. No, they weren't. Who do you make yourself out, out to be? That's a good question. Sadly, they didn't want the answer. So Jesus answered, I honor myself 
but my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, well, if I were to say that, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And when he saw it, he was glad. Now, there's two questions that obviously emerge from that statement. First, what does Jesus mean when he says my day? Abraham saw my day. Well, (laughs) what day was that? And secondly, when did Abraham rejoice? When did he see it and rejoice? We'll get to those questions next Sunday. But don't forget the context is a faulty understanding of death, resurrection. Verse 57, the Jews said, You are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? You're not even 50, man. But Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. (laughs) Now there is no question What we have recorded here is one of the most radical statements made by Jesus in all of the Gospels. First, there's no getting around the fact that Jesus is again using this divine, unspeakable name of God, I Am, and attributing it to Himself. Before Abraham was, I Am. Beyond that, when Jesus says, before Abraham was, He's specifically affirming His very pre-existence. Before Abraham was ever born. It's as though Jesus is saying, before Abraham ever came into being, I already existed. Before Abraham was, is. In response to their snarky question, have you seen Abraham? Jesus answers about as directly as he possibly could. I'm God. And and that wasn't lost on the audience. Because we read, and the chapter closes, so they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself. Literally, he concealed himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. I have absolutely no idea what's happening there. It's one of those moments where John gives us a lot of commentary and doesn't give us any there. Like, did Jesus, like, pull a Houdini and, like, ta-da, You know, did he just time out and everyone froze and he walked through the midst of them? Like, I have no clue. They are angry, they're upset, and they're ready to stone him. Did Jesus pull an ant-man, get real small, and just kind of fly? No idea. Except for the fact, it was not his time. It was not his time. You know, in closing, I want to point out a general theme that seems to be emerging in these sermons of Jesus recorded in John. I don't know if you've noticed this. We, we've, we've read several of these sermons, dug through them. But if you notice that Jesus, his sermons are very self-consumed. His sermons are about himself. Jesus talks a lot about himself. And here's why. Faith in Jesus, faith in the work that he did on the cross, is the only way you can be saved from your sin 
and liberated from your sin. Jesus was Christ-centric. His message is focused on himself because really, Jesus is the only thing that matters. Especially in a world headed to hell. And we've mentioned this before, but John chapter 20, verse 31, one of the unique aspects of John's gospel is that he kind of lays out the whole point. His whole point in, in compiling all of this information was to convince you, the reader, to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, and the Son of God, that He's God. And that believing, you may have life in His name. Like There is no way around this reality. But what you conclude about Jesus will have a profound effect on how you spend your eternity. Jesus came to earth for one reason. To set you free from a bondage you could never have been set free from. The bondage of sin. He has the authority as the Son to do this. He has the ability because He is the great I Am. If this morning you've stumbled into this place completely overwhelmed by the reality that you are unable. I beg you to listen to the still small voice of Jesus softly saying, I am. I'm unable. <laughs> I am. I am very able. Will you believe that? Just as Abraham heard the voice of the Lord, believed and was made righteous, you have a decision. Will you embrace the truth, hear the voice of Jesus, and believe He is more than able? Will you allow the liberator to liberate, the Son to free, the Savior to save? And then will you make a decision to stand firm in that liberty by abiding in His Word? I have one more thought of this passage. The chapter opens with a group of religious men wanting to stone a woman caught in adultery. And then after interacting with Jesus, they wanted to stone him. We come to Jesus condemned. The world ready to stone us. But then something happens when we meet Jesus. And he does something radical. And then the world wants to stone him. The covering of Jesus is not just his righteousness, but it's his protection. That he is our comforter. That if you've come in here beaten down and discouraged, take heart. Jesus will take the stones meant for you. Even if you're guilty. I know no one else that would do that. Right? So Father Lord, we want to just let this concept, this idea settle into our hearts.